HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, and on this episode, we talk with the study site coordinators at two of the Connect HD study sites about their experiences on the study so far, and about what they've experienced working with patients on clinical trials in Huntington's disease over the years, including the importance of retention to ensure all new potential treatments are able to be fully and properly evaluated. Amy Chester joins us from the University of Rochester site, along with Greg Souter from the Hereditary Neurological Disease Center in Wichita, Kansas. On a previous episode of the HD Insights podcast, we spoke at length with Dr. Dietrich Haubenberger from Neurocrine Biosciences, the Connect HD study sponsor. As a quick reminder, Connect HD is a phase three, randomized, double blind, placebo controlled study to evaluate the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of albenazine to reduce chorea associated with Huntington's disease. The study is being conducted by the Huntington Study Group at 46 total study sites in the United States and Canada. If you're interested in learning more about Connect HD, you can visit the study website at www.connect-hd.org. I'll provide that again at the end of this episode. And now, here's my conversation with Amy Chesser and Greg Suter. All right, well, welcome back to the HD Insights podcast. We're talking about the Connect HD study. Uh, I'm now joined by two very experienced, longtime clinical trial study coordinators, uh, Amy Cheshire and Greg Suter, to get their perspectives on working with and enrolling participants, not only in, in Connect HD, but for clinical trials in general. So um, my thanks to both of you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you, Kev. Um, before we get into specific questions, I guess, you know, we'll start, uh, let's start with Amy. Um, Amy, can you just tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself, your role, and your research site? Um, sure, yes. Well, I'm Amy Cheshire, and I'm based here uh, at the University of Rochester, which is in upstate New York. And um, I've uh, been here at the university um, for almost 29 years now which is a little hard to believe. Um, and we are a HDSA Center of Excellence taking care of folks that are dealing with Huntington's. Um, so I'm, my background is as a, a licensed clinical social worker and family therapist, um, but I'm also a clinical study coordinator and have been a coordinator uh, for a couple of decades now. So it's a nice mix of um, trying to help people uh, to be involved in research, trying to find answers to Huntington's while also trying to take care of people that are every day just trying to deal with this disease. Great, thank you. And, and Greg, um, how about a little introduction about uh, yourself uh, and your site as well? Okay, my name's Greg Suter. I'm, uh, my, my title is Executive Director of Hereditary Neurological Disease Center. We're based in Wichita, Kansas, right in the center of the country. So we serve a regional area. Uh, we just work with Huntington's disease. And we're a freestanding, non-affiliated with a hospital or university. We're a freestanding nonprofit entity um, that uses a volunteer medical team and provides a multidisciplinary approach to managing Huntington's. Um, I, I've got a little seniority on you, Amy. I've, I've been at 30 years. Um, so a lot of the families that we see, I've seen generationally. And um, we started with just um, diagnostic services. And somehow we're invited to participate in the research studies and have done 
many, many, many studies. And so I wear the badge of lead uh, study coordinator for uh, the majority of them. All right. Well, it's, it's great to speak with both of you and, and get these, you know, get your perspectives on these things. So, so Greg, I'll, I'll stick with you for a minute and, and start here. Um, I know your site actually enrolled the first patient for the Connect HD study um, before COVID-19 hit the world. So, so let's start there. How, how have things changed for you in that time, um, to, you know, where you've had to implement things to make the study enrollment and site process visit uh, site visit process safe for participants well when we started um, in 2019 there wasn't COVID um, that was known as it is today and so we had uh, four people in the study and it they actually successfully completed um, the first phase of the study but weren't allowed to go into the rollover because of COVID. So the first group of four really weren't affected by the COVID uh, processes, but then we enrolled two additional subjects. There was no way really to monitor the, um, the labs. They weren't willing to go to a private lab. Uh, there really wasn't, um, in the, in the processes, a means to do that. And so they were um, withdrawn from the study. Um, and we rode COVID out through the summer um, until it opened back up again. And then those two that had early termination visits in Connect One were allowed to move into the rollover. Um, and so three of the original four and those two then were the first Connect two subjects we had. But it certainly was a different process than what we had with the initial enrollments. A lot of temperature taking, a lot of mask wearing, a lot of travel concerns, hotel concerns for those who stayed over. Uh, certainly it was, you know, for everyone involved in studies or just medical care in general. Uh, it was a unique time, so we implemented processes. We talked with other people. Uh, our offices are part of a large medical park, and so we relied on some of the other entities to uh, model what we were going to do as far as moving forward with allowing in-person visits. All right. Well, it Amy, same question for you is, you know, is that a similar experience? Is there, uh, you know, anything different that, that you had to do or your site had to do because of COVID or, or are still currently doing? And, and how has that even evolved now that, you know, that, now that more is starting to open up and, you know, more people are getting vaccinated? I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, how that's changing as well. Yeah, um, well, we were... Um... A, a little further behind uh, Greg, certainly, in enrolling our first uh, person uh, into Connect. Um, and so when COVID really got started here, you know, by mid-March, I would say, um, we had two people that were uh, kind of in the, you know, early phases of the study. Um, and then we got, you know, hit with a pretty hard pause, I guess was the word that was used. And because we're part of a larger academic medical center, um, we had to obviously follow the guidelines from here, which essentially almost all uh, research operations um, were told that they needed to stop doing that, except for our COVID studies. Um, so I think the thing that, and like similar to Greg, then we had a similar time frame, and eventually got started back up, I think around July, end of July, maybe early August. Um, and I think the thing that I found challenging, well, there are a lot of things, but related to the study was, um, you know, so many of our HD folks, you know, we're really concerned about this negative impact on research, you know, and so it was a lot of trying to continue to support our participants um, 
and let them know that you know we're working with the study sponsor and you know we are really trying to you know don't lose faith and hope in us that we are going to be able to resume the trial uh, so it was really kind of keeping some hand-holding going, some support going, um, that there was going to be some degree of light at the end of this tunnel, um, and that we would be able to get people back in. And, and thank God that definitely was the case. And um, like Greg said, then uh, once we did kind of get that green light, um, everyone was so thankful we had. It was a new place around here. It was still very quiet. Uh, we had to reduce our overall, how many people we could have in the waiting room, um, the size of our exam rooms, you know, a lot of things to the physical plant um, to try to really maintain that safety. Um, and, and so I think all of that's become really important and continue to be important. Um, and it's amazing, you know, as I always say, and I know Greg knows this, the, the perseverance of people that are dealing with Huntington's, uh, you know, in some ways Huntington's um, is a much bigger lift than COVID perhaps. And so I think people bring that resilience with them. Uh, and also when it comes to research that they really did. Um, so I think it's continued to be inspiring. We're continuing to keep with the safety precautions now. It's nice to see people when we ask any new medications hearing, oh, I just got my vaccine, you know, last week and to be able to put that on a medication log uh, is really, you know, pretty inspiring and nice to see happening. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I think that, you know, that makes a good segue to the next logical question, which is, you know, you, you mentioned that, that uplifting feeling or spirit about being able to, you know, continue with the, the study or participate in research. Let's, you know, can you talk about that uh, for a little bit? So, you know, aside from the potential benefits of, of the treatment itself, um, you know, clinical trials have these other tangible benefits for participants. What are, what are some of those other positive participant experiences that you've seen over the years or, or in this study, just, just as a result of, of people being enrolled in research? Um, yeah, I can, I can start and then, okay. um, you, I mean, you can add or, or interrupt me at any point in time. I, um, I, I kind of am the dinosaur um, within the HSG because I've been with it so long. And, if, um, you know, I come from the age when there weren't studies in Huntington's disease really being done. Um, there was no Huntington study group when I started. So back in the day, we had DNA banking and we had brain tissue donation. Those were the research options. And everybody that came in is like, what can we do? What can we do for research? What can we do for research? Then Pharos came along and, and a, a, a myriad of other studies, um, one after another. And from the person participating perspective, they're very selfless. They're not doing it. I mean, I, I, I think I would be more selfish and say I'm doing it because I want it to help me. But they really, for the, I, I can't think of anyone um, to give an exception to. They all want to do it for everyone who has Huntington's disease and for generations to come. Um, that's why they're participating. I, I hear it over and over. Well, it's probably not going to help me, but if I can help somebody else. And this is from people who don't have children. So it isn't always, I want to help my kids or my grandkids. Um, they just want to do what's right for the greater good. And I, I, I think Maybe it's not unique to this population, but because it's a genetic disease and it's a rare disease, um, they get that there aren't that many people out there to help. And so it's important that because of the limited number of participants that they step forward. And um, I mean, I just am in awe of them all the time, the, the travel that they do, the drop everything and come to a visit because it's the only time that's available to them around the holidays or whatever it might be. They're just very vested in 
whatever research option that is there, be it, you know, simply the observational studies that are going or if it's a clinical trial. Yeah, I would just to kind of piggyback on that. Um, I am, even though I've been at it a while, I am still really amazed what I perceive as like, um, can be quite burdensome. I mean, there are pieces of the clinical trial, whether it's, you know, MRI scans that are done or receiving an infusion um, that I see are, you know, terribly burdensome, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm constantly amazed when I sort of, I'm sort of projecting there because when I check in with people, more often than not, I'll hear, oh, no, it's really not that bad. You know, oh, I was in the MRI scanner for 40 minutes, but no, it wasn't really that bad, you know, uh, or I have to drive, like Greg's saying, you know, three hours each way, maybe in the middle of a raging winter storm here in upstate New York. And no, you know, and so it's just, you know, I think that keeps us all going um, is like our perceptions of the burden versus what people living with HD are often maybe not quite the same and it's super inspiring. The other big thing that I often, um, certainly notice and become aware of is that, and I often say this when someone's thinking about joining a trial who's never been in a clinical trial, in particular a drug trial, is that, you know, there is so much more to it than just the drug, you know, and it doesn't take people, I don't think, too long before they're participating that this kind of becomes obvious. One, you are, you know, you get to be on a pretty pretty set schedule here, you know, of when we're expecting to see you, what the visit's going to kind of be like. Um, so you're getting a lot of, you know, additional support, um, you know, from our end, I hope. And I think that really provides dividends, you know, to, you know, our people that are living with Huntington's disease. Um, and so there just can really be, it's hard to often quantify some of those things. Um, but a lot of these kind of secondary gains, I guess, that people, um, and even when people come to find out, you know, quite a bit after a trial's done and we tell them, yes, you were on, you know, placebo or no, you had been receiving the drug. Um, you know, at the end of all that, it's just that people um, got so much out of um, just trying to make a difference, you know, um, feeling like something can be in your control when a lot of things related to HD sometimes aren't. Yeah, those are all really great points. Um, I, I wanted to circle back to something that Greg mentioned and, it, you know, for, for both of you to, to weigh in on, and that was, you know, about the willingness of the HD community to participate in research, um, you know, Greg described as, as being selfless. Um, wanting to benefit the, the good of the community. And I, and I bring that up because, you know, one of the, one of the um, you know, what this trial's main endpoint is, is a study of, of valbenazine for treatment of HD Korea. And we know there's two FDA approved, you know, treatments for Korea out there, but not all treatments are the same. And there's, you know, there's some really valid reasons for, you know, studying further treatments. I, I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, what, has, you know, have you had that conversation with folks? Um, you know, do they, do they ask the question about, well, you know, why, why should I bother with this study? You know, why is it, why is it important if we already have these tools available? Amy, you want to take that? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I don't often get asked that question, quite honestly, <laughs> um, which I'm not sure, you know, exactly what that means. Um, I, Generally, um, I guess I kind of approach it more. Usually, I'm asked, you know, what kind of trials do you do you guys have available right now? You know, so it's usually more in the position of just overall explaining. And usually, we're blessed to have a couple of trials going on at any given time, so that we can really kind of present it to someone. These are the available options. Um, here's what might be a good fit for you, or maybe for these reasons, this trial isn't a good, you know, kind of fit for you. So um, I think it's more um, that I tend to 
come at it from that point instead of necessarily really having to kind of justify. I think the Huntington's community, like Greg was saying, you know, is remains just so grateful that there are these options that are being explored, you know, that there isn't one just totally perfect drug to, to help manage Korea. Um, so I, I think um, folks keep a pretty open mind and are more glad that, you know, a pharmaceutical company is trying to put on this big trial um, and often really then want to step up to try to help out. I would add to um, what Amy said. We really don't have people ask, why should I be in this study when there are already drugs that exist to help with um, movement associated with Korea? Um, it typically starts as a conversation with, are there any research studies going on that you know I would be interested in or a spouse or a, or a child um, or even a parent in some cases asking, is there anything that you know, they want to participate. Is there anything available? And that opens the door to the discussion. And in the um, valbenazine study, the Connect study, um, you can't have been on another um, drug for movement, um, the tetrabenazine or the zenazine or osteto, to participate. And it certainly limited the number of people. Um, available for the trial and, and you know, we, we see just, we only see Huntington's at our site. So there is no lack of numbers. It's who makes, you know, the best participant in the study. You, I mean, we have people that travel 14 hours, you know, would that be a good participant coming every two weeks? Probably not. Um, but we certainly give everyone the option to participate who wants to participate. And so we don't need to have the discussion of, you know, there are other drugs, why would I be on this one? It's again, more like, well, if, you know, if um, the drug company thinks it's viable and you think it's viable, then we're interested. Tell us why you think it's viable. And the conversation then goes down the path of, the current drugs sometimes don't work for people. And so there is room for another option that potentially may work for someone if the drug is approved by the FDA. All right, yeah, I really appreciate your insights on this and, and the, the type of perspective that, uh, that folks bring to these questions. So, so let's, let's follow on and, and move from there, which is, okay, you know, what, what trials are out there? What research is available to me? Um, somebody's, you know, you explain what's available and someone says, I'm interested in, in participating in this. What is the sequence of events that happens next, uh, you know, in terms of their, their role, your role as a study coordinator, you know, up to the point of enrolling somebody in the trial? Amy, you want me to go or do you want to go first? <laughs> uh, you can go for, I imagine there may be some differences here. So you start. Okay. So um, it usually starts with a phone call um, uh, because we're scheduling them for another visit or scheduling a relative or had recently scheduled a, relevant, a relative for a visit and then they shared that there's research studies. Um, the one thing that is impossible to keep undercover in the Huntington's population is what's going on in research. They're very on it. Um, I, 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 I'm amazed at how much they know. Sometimes before I even have confirmation of things, they know things um, because they, they have a lot of time to uh, study it. So if somebody calls and says, you know, I understand that there's a study and do I qualify and they're planning to come for an appointment anyway, then I do what I call as a, a pre-screening uh, because with all studies, there's inclusion criteria, there's exclusion criteria. Um, you don't want to have someone come just for a study visit and then find out after they've traveled hours that they don't meet the criteria. So it isn't, you know, very time intensive to do a quick check. 
uh, and especially we primarily see people that we have a history with. It's better for retention. It's better for uh, visit reliability. Um, if we know that they're regularly calling us to schedule appointments and they don't miss appointments and um, that they um, have been in other studies perhaps previously, they're good candidates for another study because you have a history with them. So um, using that information and checking, there, there are so many things to check, medication, um, their BMI index, are they too big or too small? Are they too old or too young? What medications they might be on that um, would exclude them in the case of Connect if they were on Osteto or tetrabenazine or Xenazine. Um, the, the idea being give them hope that they may, in screening, make it through the process. We don't know what their lab will be. We don't know what their EKG might be. Um, but everything else should be pretty much determined before they ever step foot in the door um, with pre-screening subjects. And I know not everybody can, and, and um, it's just because we have the large database that we do that we're able to um, kind of pull people when, when the study starts, and I don't know how much you want to go into the, the site interest form, but we're required to submit a questionnaire of how many people do you have to fit the study, how many people are, you know, how many studies are you doing that might conflict with enrollment, do you think you can enroll, a lot of those kinds of questions. And um, you have to take all of those into account. And it, it's, um, I mean, it's the role of study coordinator to do the best job that you can to get the best candidates for the study who have a history of good retention for visits and are good candidates, um, which is again, why we predominantly utilize people that are already in our database, as opposed to somebody who would call and say, I hear you're a site, can I be in the study? We wouldn't exclude them, but the process is a, a lot different. Yeah, and I'll just to chime in, um, we may be a little bit different. We tend to, um, when we have our uh, HT clinics um, during the month, uh, we tend to often uh, pull people that are actually, you know, right there at their visit um, who have expressed, you know, interest in research and participating. Um, and then I can really usually often be able to um, talk with them, uh, kind of give them a sort of an overview or lay of the land related to the study. I usually then kind of send people home with what's called the informed consent. And the informed consent is kind of the Bible of a research study. It's often, a, I think for Connect, it's over 30 pages long. Uh, it goes into every aspect of the study. It does really, it's kind of does our due diligence to really folks can at their leisure then um, take home, look that over, and then usually I'll do kind of a follow-up call um, a couple days later um, to kind of see uh, what their thoughts were about that and whether or not it seems like something they might be interested uh, in pursuing. Um, and then we generally, like Greg said, would, would set up um, a screening visit. And the screening visit is really the opportunity um, for us to figure out whether someone's going to be a good fit um, for a study like, you know, like Connect. Um, like Greg was saying, I always say there's things we want you to have, and then there's other things we don't want you to have um, to be part of a study. Some of that we definitely can know ahead of time who's going to probably be a good fit, and then some of those unknowns that we won't know until somebody actually comes in for for that screening visit. So um, I, I think that's, you know, there's all the sites across the US, I'm sure do things a little bit in their own unique way, kind of based on their, you know, on their population.
We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Yeah, and you both kind of touched on points that I want to circle back to in a moment regarding, you know, fitness or being fit for a particular study. But one thing I did uh, want to ask um, both of you if, if it's come up, because I, that's around um, anosognosia um, or what's you know referred to as the, the lack of awareness or acceptance around chorea. Um, you know, the, the issue being that somebody with chorea that may be impacting, um, you know, their quality of life or, or what they can do, they don't necessarily recognize that or, or maybe think that's an issue. I, I'm just curious if, you know, whether it's with a study or just in, in other clinic settings, you know, how, how often or what that conversation is like, um, you know, with someone about their, their career, if they're, you know, kind of showing this, you know, maybe lack of awareness around it. Amy, I'll jump in. Okay. Uh, and, and, and be kind of short with it. Um, the majority of people we see acknowledge some degree of career. Um, if they had no Korea, it, it's doubtful that they would come to see us unless they were in an in a, um, observational study trial. And they would not be diagnosed, which would be exclusionary from you have to be diagnosed with Huntington's to be in the study. So um, we don't see a lot of the lack of awareness to get them, you know, getting them in the study. What is interesting is that the ones who are in the study, their perception of their career is a whole lot different than the clinician's impression of their career, which is the, the, the acknowledgement of symptoms. Um, and I find, I mean, that's always been fascinating um, because people will say, "You think? do you think I have a lot of movement? And I always ask the question right back. Do you think you have a lot of movement? Well, I have some movement. I have a little movement. And then usually whoever comes with them makes the correction. So that's kind of the right turn. It's like, you don't have a little career. You have a lot of career, uh, be it a child, a parent, or a spouse, sometimes even a sibling. Um, and it doesn't convince them that they do, but it provides an awareness that they they do and they kind of shrug it off it's like oh well it really doesn't bother me so you know maybe I just don't know about it but it, it's it is an interesting component to um, um, and I think for some it is an obstacle um, in enrolling in a in a drug trial that involves uh, movements um, associate you know the Korea associated with Huntington's disease because there is a, a, a denial of the severity of symptoms I don't um, think that we see a lot of people who deny symptoms 100%. Right, yeah, no, I, I agree that, um, I, you know, I think this can sometimes be a little bit of a tricky area and um, clinicians that take care of folks with Huntington's, um, I think probably have a lot of different um, opinions about this. Um, you know, historically, what, it was only maybe 10 years ago now when xenazine, you know, first came into onto the story. And that was really by HD families. I remember at that FDA hearing, um, you know, really going to bat saying, we need something, you know, we are desperate for something. And so there's certainly, you know, it's been, it was a long time in coming to get that first FDA medication approved. And to see where we're at now, 
you know, it is really inspiring. And, you know, way back then, maybe because we didn't have options, we probably didn't quote unquote treat a lot of Korea um, per se. And um, I think obviously more of that has shifted with having treatments available, um, obviously move the curve there. Um, you know, I think we, we try to stay with where our patients are at on this one. And like Greg says, a lot of times um, families will perhaps be uh, a little bit more, you know, aware, cognizant of the impact of Korea that other folks can. I had um, a woman who, for example, she works in a, like a county jail and um, she has Huntington's disease. She was a new patient here. Um, she came along with her two sisters and she was interested after she saw us in, in participating in this trial. She didn't really think that she had much in the way, you know, of what we, movements, extra movements, that's what we usually call it around here. Um, but her sisters, as we're talking more and more about her day-to-day -day job, you know, they're kind of sitting next to her, a little behind her with a lot of this kind of, you know, shaking their head, like, you know, we think, you know, your movements, the sisters also work in the same um, system, so they're very aware of things, you know, could really see how her Korea, even though it wasn't by no means, you know, profound, um, but significant enough that it was making it harder to lock things up, unlock things, you know, she had a lot of hands-on, you know, with different folks there. And so sometimes I think it is, it's kind of trying to get the whole picture of, you know, what's the impact here, you know, for people's Korea. Sure. And, um, you know, I know every clinical trial is different um, for the study visits, but in terms of Connect HD, what, you know, what is a typical study visit like once you're, you know, once you're enrolled uh, in the trial, what, what does that involve for participants? Do you want to, great. I can, um, you know, I think in general, once you kind of get those big visits, which is usually that screening visit, and then that second visit, which is what's called the baseline visit. And then that's when people are actually um, dispensed study drug to get started on it. Um, those visits tend to be, you know, somewhat lengthy because we're gathering a lot of new history and data and, um, you know, a lot of different procedures that are going on. But I think after that, um, the subsequent visits, you know, they, they are frequent, like Greg was talking about, uh, every two weeks is, is, a, is a little bit of a lift, you know, um, but there, it doesn't go on for a long period of time every two weeks. So it's kind of a, you know, more frequency, but overall shorter duration of the, the double blind phase of the study. Um, and so I think those, all those visits kind of after the baseline, um, we tend to try to, you know, be very aware of people's time and their commitment and try to uh, move through a study visit uh, reasonably well. Uh, sometimes we'll hit some hiccups along the way, but uh, at least on our end, and again, I know there's probably a lot of variability, but generally they're about an um, hour and a half, I want to say, kind of in duration, um, kind of an estimate from start to finish. So um, just kind of to give people, I think, kind of a ballpark idea. And then again, once you hit the end of the study, uh, then the visits um, you know, take longer when you get into those kind of final uh, phases of the, the first part of the study. And I pretty much ditto what Amy just said as far as the visits go. It's interesting because when you talk with people in the consenting process or even the pre-screening process, uh, they want to know how often they have to come. And for this study, they come every two weeks for 14 weeks and then roll over and um, they're on either placebo or they're on the drug during that period of time. We're blind. Um, the investigator's blind. Everyone is blind as to what group they're assigned to. And um, as the visits progress every two weeks, they start to try and get you to tell them what you think. And you know, you, as a clinician, you have to be blind to all kinds of effects. One is, I think I'm on the drug. What do you think? 
kind of questioning. And what is really interesting in this study, um, because of COVID versus um, the um, Osteto study, the first HD study, is that we have to keep the participants separated to a good extent because we can't have them all in the lobby at the same time. Um, where in, in the first HD study, they became friends. I mean, we had people who even traveled with other participants in the study and they would talk about the, what they thought they were on drug or not on drug or, I mean, various kinds of components, but they built relationships. It was an interesting support group. And with Connect, because there's a, the social distancing um, component, um, you know, as soon as somebody comes in and we, you know, we pre-screen them on the phone initially for COVID, tell them they have to wear a mask when they come, check their temperature um, upon arrival, and then we put them in an exam room and, and they stay there until we move them. And there is no real opportunity. I mean, they may see someone going to the restroom or, or coming in after them, but there isn't an opportunity for really an engagement of, you know, do you think you're on drug? And that's unfortunate because I think the bonding that, that took place with the other studies we've done is the camaraderie of the people, not just the people with Huntington's, but the people as companions that bring them. So the, the uniqueness of the timeline we're using now um, is unfortunate because they don't have the opportunity to query others. It's like, do you think my movements are better? And um, that may be even a good thing because they're not given the false hope that, uh, oh yeah, I think that your movements are a lot better by someone who doesn't know what their movements are. Yeah, it's a really interesting observation. It'll be, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out as well. And, you know, in the end and compared to future trials after this, you know, I, I really appreciate the time both of you have provided for this. I, I want to wrap with just, you know, one more question for the two of you. And it's something um, that you brought up in an earlier response, you know, making sure you get the right participants for a study and, and for any study, you know, retention is always a key to the success of a, of a clinical trial. What is it, you know, what is a conversation that you might have uh, with a participant where either they're unsure if they'd be able to complete the study or they're, they're having, you know, second thoughts about staying in or considering, um, a, you know, another study that's coming up simultaneously. What, what is that conversation, you know, what are some of the conversations you've had around retention um, with participants over the years in, in your experience? Um, yeah, I can take a stab at that. Um, yeah, you know, I think we, especially, um, I think when someone's participating for the first time in a clinical drug trial, you know, one of the things that, that I do um, is really try to explain the difference between being a patient and being a research participant, because most folks really don't understand that distinction. Um, and, and it is important that they understand that, you know, when you're participating in research, it's, it's much more of a one-way street in many ways. In other words, we're gathering a lot of data, you know, kind of from you with what you're experiencing while in this, like in this case being, you know, on valvenazine or taking placebo. Um, and so there's not as much of that kind of give and take. And so like Greg was saying, it sometimes can be you know, a little tricky because people start asking you those questions or, you know, don't, do you think my, I think my motor exam went better this time than last time, you know, what do you think? And that kind of thing, which is totally normal and natural curiosity to ask. It's just when you're in a trial, you know, we have to kind of to, you know, maintain our, you know, sort of objectivity about it. And we don't know whether somebody's on drug or not ourselves. Um, and so I think, you know, really trying to bottom line, I don't want people to be surprised by what goes on in a study. So trying to kind of minimize the surprises or the, oh, well, you never told me that, or I didn't understand it was going to take that long, or I didn't understand I'm going to get my blood taken at every visit. 
um, you know, I think we really just really want to try to help people feel well informed that they know what the trial is about, what the commitment is about. And, you know, not everyone's up for making that commitment. And that's perfectly fine. You know, I think people have to, you know, know that, that I'll often say, you know, maybe this trial isn't a good fit for you, but there will always be another trial going on, you know, and so um, we're going to have the best luck with keeping people in the trial, I think, as long as we can be as transparent as possible, you know, about what the expectations are, um, what the things you can, um, you know, really expect to go through with the trial as best we can. So I think being as upfront really can help a lot with keeping people in a trial. I would add to that, Amy, um, everything is in the consent and the, the, the consent process for the study. Um, I mean, there's nothing more important in the study than the consent process. If, you know, it would be easy to just say, hey, here's the study, you know, sign the paperwork, but it doesn't work that way. Um, there's the capacity process to see if they can and, and are able to sign on their own. Um, do they understand the study? Then going through page by page, here are the options. And in the Connect um, consent, it has numerous places where it says, and you can withdraw, you know, without any, any um, effect on your future care. You can withdraw, you can withdraw. Um, because it, it, it's part of the process that, you know, you're not contracting for anything. Um, while at the same time, we don't want people who come into the study and it's like, well, you know, it just wasn't a good fit for me, so I'm going to leave. So I always just take it a few extra steps. And if somebody is questioning as to whether or not they really want to participate, say it's a commitment. Yes, you are able to withdraw at any time, but if everyone withdraws from the study for one reason or another or jumps to another study because they think it might be better or whatever um, they might have read on the internet affects the study. And so I, I just try to encourage them to, for the period of time the study exists, stay the course. But know you have the option of leaving uh, but make it a, a little more of a commitment focused uh, participant as opposed to well if something better comes along then um, is it okay that I leave uh, kind of a conversation and, and so I, I just again you know from the get-go and Amy you said you know just just being transparent and I think good consenting provides that transparency. I mean, give it to them ahead of time, let them read it, let them scribble their questions on the form, then bring them in, answer their questions. Um, one of the concerns that I always have is when the caregiver says, I, I want them to participate in the study. <laughs> and when you ask the individual who is going to be the subject in the study, if they want to participate, if they respond with, well, my wife thinks it would be a good thing, then we kind of go back a few steps and then engage their interest. They have to be the one interested. And um, sometimes I'll just ask to have the person in the room alone and really get their thoughts on, you wanna be here or are you here because someone else wants you to be here? And I think that's a, another important component in getting um, good retention and, and people who participate um, through the end of the study. Well, Amy and Greg, you've brought some really fascinating insights to the conversation here today for us. And uh, I appreciate your time and just wanna thank you for, for joining us again, um, sincerely. I want to thank uh, you, Kevin, and, and I want to um, thank the, the population that is Huntington's disease um, for their amazing energy and interest in studies. Yeah, I would second that. All the, um, you know, we couldn't do here, be here and do this kind of work if it wasn't for 
our HD families um, who are really at the heart of all this. And but having all the structure around them, whether it's the Huntington Study Group or um, Neurocrin, who's sponsoring the Connect trial, um, it really does take a whole community here to do this. So um, thank you. My thanks again to Greg Suter and Amy Cheshire for making time to speak with me on this episode. Once again, if you would like more information about Connect HD, you can visit the study's website at www.connect-hd.org. That's spelled K-I-N-E-C-T-H-D.org. And a special thank you to you, our audience, for joining us once again on the HD Insights podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to automatically receive the latest episode releases as soon as they are available. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and look out for one another. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.